Hello and welcome to DIT On, the podcast brought to you by the Royal and Naval Association. I'm your host, Jenna Brodie, and today's guest is our very own CEO, Bill Oliphant. Not only is Bill our CEO, he served an incredible 37 years in the Royal Navy. He joined in 1982 as a TIF Marine Engineer and served for four years before he saw the light and transferred to Logs Officer and went to Dartmouth. (laughs) Over the course of his career, he's clearly served in many ships and establishments and also after staff college, transferring across to the joint world, planning operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Penultimate job was in Naples, which we'll get into. Uh, and his final job was captain of HM Naval Base Portsmouth. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Jenna, thank you very much indeed. That's, uh, that's very kind of you. And it's bizarre to hear the sort of snippets of your career just sort of highlighted <laughs> in that way. But, uh, but yes, it just goes in a flash, 37 mm. years. It's quite remarkable. And uh, I do distinctly remember getting on the train at Kirkcaldy, my mum dropping me off and, and waving me off. And uh, it must have been about a 10-hour train journey down to, to Plymouth to get on a bus across the clanking Torpoint Ferry, which we all remember, and then uh, up through the gates of Fiskard and thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? But, uh, but I have to say, within, within a couple of days, probably, uh, I thought this, this works for me, this is fun, it's a laugh, uh, and, and, and that was it, you know, I was, I was hooked, yeah. uh, 37, 37 years, it just sounds a completely unfeasible length of time, but, uh, but as I say, it goes so quickly, mm. and, uh, and of course ending up as a captain base at uh, Portsmouth was just uh, a superb way to finish because it was the period when we were getting the base ready for the Queen Elizabeth coming in, which of course, uh, as we all know, was the the biggest uh, ship, the big, biggest ships that uh, the Royal Navy have ever had. Uh, so the work that had to go on at uh, at Portsmouth to be ready to receive them was was phenomenal. Uh, so, so looking after that program, and then actually the big day themselves and the ship, the Queen Elizabeth appeared on the horizon, and it all came in uh, was was undoubtedly a, a, a fantastic highlight. So I, th- I consider myself very fortunate. I know you're going to to pick apart my career and bits and pieces during the course of this, but uh, yeah, as as you as you said earlier, the early part of your career. You tend to do the uh, single service stuff at Seymour. Uh, but then after staff course, which I did in sort of 2000, uh, 2001, uh, after that, it became very joint. And uh, I did a lot of jobs in the, in the joint world. Uh, in fact, you talk about highlights. I'd, I joined the Joint Force Headquarters which is the deployable part of PGHQ up at Northwood. And uh, I think I was only, I must have got there about the 20th of August uh, in, in 20, 2001. Mm-hmm. So about three weeks before 9-11 happened. Mm. So as you can imagine, uh, my, my, uh, 
my my bottom didn't touch the ground during the course of that uh, appointment. When first we were deployed to Tampa within a few weeks of the, the event itself to join Central Command to, uh, to do the command and control for kicking the Taliban out of Afghanistan initially. And then, uh, and then of course, the planning and execution of what's become known as the Second Gulf War hmm. in uh, 2003. So two huge events in one, in one uh, appointment, but quite remarkable. And of course, set me up experience-wise quite nicely for, for all sorts of things. It took me right through to, uh, to Naples, doing the joint job in Naples. And, uh, and then, of course, back at the naval base to finish it off. So, yeah, it was, it was uh, hugely interesting. And uh, as lots of ships but, uh, and lots of people, lots of places. But the people, for me, was undoubtedly the highlight, I think, of, uh, of the 37 years. And I always loved, especially sort of, you know, 10 or 15 years in, uh, you couldn't really walk into a, a, a mess or a wardroom and not know somebody. Mm. And it really felt like you were part of a family. Uh, and folk that you'd maybe last seen five or, or even 10 years ago would pop out of the woodwork and you, you would share experiences with them from your past. And it, it's really lovely. So, uh, so I'm very fortunate to be able to continue that in many ways. Now with with the RNA, so uh, yeah, I'll I'll grow up one day and uh, and get a real job, but uh, not yet, Jenna. Not yet. I definitely <laughs> that definitely resonates with me. What you said, you can go into a mess deck anywhere or whatever draft you have, and you always know someone. And what I find is, as soon as you start spinning bits and chatting it's like you only saw them yesterday as opposed to five or ten years ago and I think that's the great thing yeah. about the culture of the navy yeah it, it is you're absolutely right it is a culture and uh the the uh the spinning of dits within the navy is uh it is a fascinating thing it's almost as if the folklore is passed down by word of mouth a bit like the sort of Red Indian culture. It's almost the same in, in the world of Matlows and uh, in the, you know, the, uh, the grey funnel line. <laughs> Most definitely. So going back to your career, very briefly, <clears throat> you joined as a TIF marine engineer and you served for four years. But then when you went to AIB in Dartmouth, you decided to go logs officer. Was there any specific reason you didn't want to stay in, in the engineering branch? So, so when I, uh, the, way, the way they used to work it back in 1982 when I joined is uh, you, they, they wouldn't actually say which side of artificer that, that you do. You didn't join as an ME or an AE or a, or a WE, you just joined as, a, as an artificer apprentice. And of course, the, the canny way they did it is they said, oh, 95% of folk get the, uh, the specialization that they want. And I actually wanted to be an, an air engineer. So, uh, so when I was uh, sort of finishing school, 
as it happened, there was an army recruiting office uh, quite close to where I lived. Uh, so I went to, to sniff about that first. And uh, from there, I, I was sent up to Dundee for an interview with somebody. And they said, well, unfortunately, all the places for the Army Air Corps apprenticeships are full this year. Uh, you know, I, I can offer you an apprenticeship in the Remi. But it wasn't really what I wanted. I didn't want to be a vehicle mechanic. I wanted mm. to be an aircraft mechanic. So, uh, so I was up in Dundee. And in those days, all the careers offices were, were different. They weren't co-located. So I wandered along the road and I thought, well, if it's aircraft engineering I'm interested in, the obvious place to go is the RAF. So I popped in there and I said, look, I've done these tests with the Army. They've offered me this because they don't have any places. And they said, well, actually, it's the same for us. We wouldn't be able to start you until Easter of, of next year. And this was maybe June or something of 1982. Mm. So I thought, you know, that just sounds like forever when you're that age. You know, what are you going to do? Scull around for nine months. Different world now, of course. Now you would go traveling and, and, and do things like that. But anyway, it just seemed like forever. So third option, Navy, uh, in you go. And of course, I went in and here was this lovely ARS chief uh, putting his arm around me. and say, ah, oh, in you come, son. Why didn't you come here in the first place? You know, stacks of places for air tips in here. Sit down and do these, uh, fill these forms in and, and do these uh, yeah, tests and God knows all what. So anyway, the long and the short of it was, an interview later, uh, a medical later, and, and that was it. The letter came through the door and uh, and the, the rail warrant, and as I say, uh, off to mum dropping me off at Kirkcaldy to travel down to, uh, <laughs> to travel down the length and breadth of the country. And that was it. So, so yeah, I went in wanting to be an air engineer and I was one of 300 boys who all started on the 3rd of September, 1982. We all started then. And it just shows the, how, how it's changed. Right? To think that the Navy actually did away with artificers at one stage, thinking that the contractor could do that for us. It seems quite, quite uh, remarkable that we were conned into that uh, at, at one stage. But nevertheless, uh, apprenticeships are back, thank goodness, albeit the artificer program isn't. But uh, but yeah, one of 300 boys all joining on the same day uh, to Fiskard. And we, we all had a common first year, but then after the first year, we split up into marine engineers who went to Caledonia, the air engineers went to Daedalus in those days, and uh, the WEs went to Collingwood. Hmm. So, uh, so I, I actually wanted to do airframe and propulsion. So it was more the mechanical side of the air engineering. And there were no apprenticeships. Uh, out of the 300 apprenticeships available, they didn't need any uh, airframe and propulsion. And I think there were about five for the fleet air arm, uh, weapons radio, weapons electrical, stuff like that. And I thought, I didn't really want to do the sparky stuff. I wanted to do the proper engineering you know mm. so uh so i ended up going down the me route and i went up to caledonia and it was just bizarre caledonia and recife i joined the navy to see the world and i ended up 
in Caledonia for three years, 17 miles down the road from mum. You know, <laughs> I, could, I could take my Dobie home at the weekend. It was, uh, <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be quite like that. But, uh, but I have to say, my mum did enjoy it because I was forever bringing my chums back from, uh, from, uh, from Cali for the weekend and, and things like that. So, so it was good. Uh, and then when, when the time came to go to the AIB and all the rest of it, I'd done four years of an apprenticeship. And of course, in those days, the engineering officers all went to Manadon and did a, uh, an MA, a, a BSc. So the, the thought of going round the boy again yeah. to do another three years of study uh, and training before getting anywhere near a ship, I have to say, uh, didn't, didn't enthrall me. And, and I, I wasn't particularly brilliant at maths either, if I'm absolutely honest with you, Jenna. And I, I got through the tiffies bit, but I was a little bit scared at doing degree level maths. <laughs> I must admit, <laughs> I, just, uh, I, just, I just didn't enjoy it. So I looked at other options and uh, I actually looked at, I looked at warfare, but uh, I wear uh, contact lenses. And I didn't know if my, my eyesight was going to be up to scratch or not. I suspected it was borderline. I think these days, if it's corrected and, and you can see, okay, it's not a problem for warfare. But back in those days, you had to have a certain standard uncorrected. So I went to see my optician. I'd, I had this thing arranged with uh, an army ophthalmic person in Edinburgh. I was in Recite at the time. And uh, I, I just, I was sort of burning with excitement, I suppose. And I went to see my own optician to say, look, what's the story with my eyes? Am I, going to, am I going to be able to pass this test or not? And the woman dug my records out. She said, well, you're G7 and the right eye and whatever it is. And I said, oh, I don't know. I need the old sort of six over 12 type thing, you know. Mm. Ah, she said, that's your actual eyesight standard. What I've given you is the prescription for your lenses. She said, look, the, uh, the, uh, the testing rooms are available. Uh, one of the testing rooms is available at the back. Just, uh, just go and sit yourself down and give it the old hand over the eye sort of routine. See how far you can read down and just, just come and tell me. So I went <laughs> into this. I went into this little booth on my own and I, and I did that. And there were two boards there. And I thought to myself, I wonder if these things are all standard. Uh, so I, I scribbled down the boards, both of them, the eyesight boards, and I did what she said with the hand over the eye and I read down all the rest of it. And it was touch and go. And it, to be honest, it looked as though I wasn't going to quite reach the standard. Mm. Anyway, next day was the big day to go to see this ophthalmic chappie. And uh, I made up a couple of poems uh, the, the night before and learnt these poems which were the boards you see amazing so, uh, so I find myself I find myself with this uh, ophthalmologist in Edinburgh and of course you know how they kind of stare in the corner of your eye with a little torch thing mm. and they just tell you to, to read the read the thing so uh, 
so I, I something wasn't quite right. I couldn't put my hand on it. The seventh thing wasn't quite right. But I cracked on anyway with my poem. And anyway, the chap sat back in his chair, switched off his lamp and said, Oliphant, that's remarkable. That's the board next door you're reading. <laughs> Oh no! So, so, that, so that was a wee bit of a shame, really, and that was the uh, that was the warfare route came to a fairly rapid end mm. uh, that afternoon. Uh, but but my DO at uh, Caledonia was was a fantastic bloke, and he said, "Well," and I thought that's it, you know, I'm going to have to do the ME, and and that'll be that. But uh, he said, "Look, you know." Uh, Supply and Secretariat, you know, might might not like the sound of it, but you know, I've got a couple of pals who are uh, Supply and Secretariat officers. Uh, let me fix you up, and you can go and speak to them. Uh, there were the dockyard at Precise, that Cochrane was buzzing back then. There were four Type Forty Twos, and all the small ships were based there, so it was really quite an active place. And they had a Supply Officer Tenders there who looked after all the little ships and things. So I went and. and Bless him, my DO was fantastic. Fixed me up with all this and I went to speak to them. I thought, actually, this looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, so so I followed up on that and found myself at Dartmouth as a as a as a baby pusser. Amazing. So uh, and I didn't have a degree, of course, but I did have whatever qualifications that meant it was full career commission. So I joined as a sort of GL. Uh, back in those days, generalist, which meant I did the full middies course. Uh, no, no corners cut, uh, full four terms at Dartmouth, then two terms at sea as a midshipman, the full, uh, what do you call it, the, the fleet board at the yeah. end of it and all the rest of it. But it was a great time and I, and I loved it. Uh, and of course, Dartmouth was no hardship because I'd just been through four years of Tiffy's training and knew exactly what to expect. I knew it was all a game and uh, that, that it was fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so I always say I kind of reached the pinnacle of my naval career at Dartmouth because in my last term, I sort of reached the, the giddy heights of senior sub uh, at the college and uh, was, was gifted the... The, uh, the same cabin that uh, Prince Charles had when he was at the college and all the rest of it, you know. So, and, and waking up every morning and sort of opening your, your curtains to look over the parade ground down to Kingswear, watch the little steam train chugging on the other side of the, uh, the River Dart. Mm. It was just, you know, I was just blown away by it. And I thought, I, I really had to pinch myself. Is this, is this happening for real? So, so I've always been an enthusiast, I have to say, Jenna. Uh, it's, it's good fun. And uh, every morning I had to go down for colours. And I would stand there and div sub of whichever uh, division was putting the flag up that morning would be standing next to me. And the captain and the commander would sort of uh, walk up and down uh, behind along the ramps at the top there uh, until about, they would always time it immaculately and they would swing into position in front of uh, maybe about six or eight yards in front of myself and the div sub. 
and, uh, and, and be in the right place at the right time for colors in the morning. And, you know, I can guarantee you one, one day every week, the middies would cock it up <laughs> and uh, it would be a disaster. There's something would go wrong. And, uh, and the poor old commander, uh, Ian Robinson, his name was, I could see him shaking from the back with sort of sort of rage, you know, for goodness sake. But of course, every time that somebody put that flag up or the team that was putting the flag up, it was a new set of people that were doing it every single day. Mm. So they were learning the, uh, the routine of colours and, and what came in which order and how many bells were dinged at eight or 0800 and how many bells were dinged at 0900 and all the rest of it. So, uh, so it was all, <laughs> and again, you would turn around and sort of tut uh, as, as they walked away. It never sort of assumed a bollocking to us. It was just a, just a tut or whatever, mm. or something like that. But again, it's just, it's just all part of the shenanigan, really, isn't it? Yeah. Of, uh, of Dartmouth. Uh, so, so that was that. And then I went to see an HMS Edinburgh as a midshipman. Very, very lucky to, to be part of what which, which she was pretty well, a brand new ship at that stage. And uh, Prince Andrew came on board as a young lieutenant to get his bridge watch keeping certificate. And uh, the, 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 the wardroom there, it was a strong wardroom, I must say. And almost, well, I can't think of, whew, one, two, three, four, uh, almost all of them, all the warfare officers drove uh, in the end. Uh, during the course of the career, stayed in and drove mm. uh, ships. So they're, they're, it was a good crowd and it was a good, good learning base for me. And it's really bizarre because one of the other highlights of my career was I was the, the Pusser's appointer at one stage, the career manager. And, and that's really where I really sort of started to understand the, the moral component of all of this uh, and, and the people piece uh, more than anything. But uh, fitting the right people to the right jobs was so important, it really was. And, and there, there used to be four factors for, uh, there's probably changed now, but when I did this sort of a dozen years ago, there were four factors there were uh, the needs of the service. Mm -hmm. There was career progression to build people up. Uh, there was uh, return of service after courses. And of course, there was personal preference. And we used to go on these roadshows and, and I would ask people, okay, these are the four factors. Which one of these do you think is the most important? Let's start with uh, needs of the service. And at least half of the people would put their hand up for that, of course. Mm. How about career progression? And a good proportion would put their hands up for that as well. Almost nobody would put their hands up for the, for the other two. But I always did the personal preference last. And you would always maybe get one or maybe two who would put their hand up for that. And I was able to say to them, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because... My challenge as the appointer is to make sure that 
whoever it is, I understand their ambitions and their needs, and I find the job that they want to do because they want, if, they, if you're in a job that you want to do, then you'll pull the duvet back in the morning, you'll jump out of bed and you'll go at it and you'll do a better job rather than a job that you have been assigned into. Mm. So, uh, so that's quite dangerous. But I'm just imagining all these people now uh, listening to this podcast uh, down the line thinking, I don't remember that bugger elephant uh, <laughs> sort of uh, <laughs> sending me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's certainly what I tried to do was to get people into the job that they wanted to do. Clearly, it was my job to, to try and articulate to them, the better ones, for example, that they needed to go for the pushier jobs to, uh, to continue on that, on that upwards path. Hmm. to make the most of that and make the most of the talent that we we had to grow but uh but that was another real highlight jenna of uh of my career but one of the things there was that as you know the logistics branch tend to do the personnel and the logistics side of it but i also knew from my own operational experience that we had a lot to give in the plans area, mm -hmm. uh, what, what's known in the headquarters as J5. And I, uh, I was banging on the door for a while saying, uh, we, we're good at this, loggies are good at this, give us a chance at this. And of course the warfare branch were saying in, in their usual sort of uh, master race kind of way, well, well, I don't think so, Bill. I, I think that's really sort of warfare uh, part of shit, you know. Anyway, one day, one day, uh, so the, the, uh, the warfare commander, appointer, came up to see me and said, Bill, he said, I'm, <clears throat> I can't fill this billet at uh, PGHQ, at the Permanent Joint Headquarters, an SO2 plans job, a lieutenant commander plans job. Uh, would, would you be able to fill it for me? And I, and I said, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll have a look. And, and of course, this was the opportunity. And, and needless to say, I literally put my brightest and best uh, into that job. And of course, it worked a treat. It, it, it was a woman, actually. I'll, I won't say her name. I'll spare her the, uh, the, uh, the embarrassment. But uh, it won't surprise you to know that she's gone, gone on and done very well. But uh, she absolutely knocked their socks off in, uh, in that job in PGHQ to the extent that two months later, her boss, who was an army colonel, was on the phone to me, the Navy Loggies appointer, to say, uh, Bill, she is doing the most magnificent job. Have you got a box of, uh, of, of people like that? And, and we got another, an SO1 job, a commander job in J5 out of it as well. Yeah. So I was absolutely delighted by that yeah. to break into the, the plans area. And I knew that our people would excel in that area. So when I got promoted to captain, uh, I was uh, sent, well, no, no, I wasn't sent at all. I was asked, to go to uh, the Joint Headquarters, the NATO Joint Headquarters in Naples. And uh, that was very amusing because 
it kind of came around to uh, to bite me on the bum a little bit because they wanted to, me to go down to a J5 job, a, a plans job as a captain. So I thought, well, fair enough, Oliphant, you've uh, you've only got yourself to blame for this. Uh, let's hope your skills are up to the mark uh, to go down there and do a, a plans job. Well, what was quite amusing was that there were actually two naval Royal Navy captains' billets down in uh, in Naples at that time. One in J3, which is the ops area, which, as you know, is the domain of the master race, and uh, and this one in in J5 in the plans area. So off I trotted down to having been to the uh, the NATO Staff College in Rome for six months, completely spammed up on the new uh, NATO language that I was about to be using for this job and all the rest of it. And uh, I got down there and the chap who was in the J3 job, the captain who was there, had a little word with me and said, look, uh, I've had a bit of a fallout with the, the German colonel, who's the Primas Inter Paris colonel in J3. And I've actually shifted across to the J5 job uh, again, a couple of months ago. Would you, would you be comfortable? And he only had, I don't know, three or four months left of his time uh, to do down there. And he said, would you, would you be prepared to go into G3 at the moment? And of course, I had to laugh, Jenna, because there I was knocking the door down, trying to break into J5, uh, never even dreamt of going down to challenge the, uh, the warfare uh, guys for a J3 post. And, and then I found myself in J3 of support. So I, I was looking after, uh, I, was, I was looking after things, the, the defend function effectively. So, uh, so force protection, uh, counter IED, CBRN, uh, ballistic missile defense, and then laterally, we took on uh, the cyber defense area as well. And of course, I, I've been very lucky because all of my, my time since that job in JFHQ in 2001, since 9-11, I effectively had been doing joint operational stuff. Mm. Uh, I did a six-month tour in Afghanistan as the chief of staff of the, the Joint Force Logistic component out there uh, as well during that period. So, so I, and I went there and I had a brace of uh, half colonels, commander equivalent, uh, and as my sort of heads of section down there, all different nationalities, of course, French, German, American, uh, Spanish, uh, all good guys and girls absolutely knew their stuff inside out. But none of them had worked in an operational headquarters before. So, so we had this fantastic arrangement. They kept me right on the tactical. And, uh, and I was able to, to, to apply the operational piece to it uh, as part of it. And it worked really well, I have to say. Mm. And, and let's face it, you know, I don't know the, uh, the injections on an ADOS-8 computer to get a CDAR missile to, to fire off. But, but that wasn't what the operational level was about. So, uh, so funnily enough, 
my uh, <laughs> my grounding way back in HMS Edinburgh, doing the full midis time and the full fleetboard, and uh, and and feeling the back of the hand of uh, of the ops officer in HMS Edinburgh when I didn't get it quite right on my frequencies for the radar and things like that, uh, just stuck and it stood me in such good stead for uh, for what was the penultimate job in my career after all these years quite remarkable quite mm. remarkable but uh, but great fun great fun yeah it sounds you honestly bill your your career sounds amazing um and it sounds so polished but it can't have all been perfect you know did you was there ever anything embarrassing that happened to you <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> oh, let's talk about so, that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So, I know this is uh, uh, an audible uh, podcast, obviously, but for for those uh, you can't see me, but I'm I'm wringing my uh, my face and my hands at the thought <laughs> of this. But uh, when I when I pitched up in Naples, uh, my, my wife was coming out, but the house that we had been allocated wasn't quite ready. And there was a bit of work being done in it. So there was a kind of singles uh, block of apartments, which uh, the British community had rented. And, and I had a sort of transit apartment, perfectly nice, uh, apartment in in Naples uh, or a place called Lago Patria which is just on the, the outskirts of Naples and of course I'd never been to well I had been to Naples you know uh, and ship visits and things like that so I knew it was kind of rough and ready down there and of course there's this there's this undertone of uh, of Camorra uh, organized crime sort of mafia type stuff so and, and then the, the advice you get of course and you see it we, you, you drive your car into this compound and there's a there these big steel gates, electronic uh, gates, which open and close behind you. And every window in your house, every door has a steel shutter on it. So you're advised you do not leave the house without closing all your steel shutters, turning the key four times to get all the locks to, to turn. So actually going in and out, nipping out for a pint of milk was a pain in the neck. Uh, you know, you had to be quite organised because uh, it literally took you half an hour to, be, to leave the house to, to lock up. But uh, so there was, there was always this sort of hint of, of violence could occur. And this was right at the start. So it felt quite acute at this stage. Anyway, I, I, uh, it was February when I was down there. And it was warm enough, uh, being a Scot, you know, it was, it was warm enough for me to have in this bedroom where I was sleeping to have, uh, and I was right in the roof, in the roof space. So it was a three, four story high building and everybody down below had a sort of continuous balcony that went all the way around. But I was up in the sort of coom section at the top of the building. So, so each, uh, each window, each room uh, had uh, had its own mini balcony, uh, sort of tied into the to the roof space. So uh, 
So what happened was about three o'clock in the morning, I heard what sounded like a car coming into our compound. And I don't know why, I was sort of half asleep. You know how it is when you're dozing. And uh, I heard the gate closing behind and we'd always been told, don't leave the cars outside, put them in the garage. So I expected the next sound to hear was the roller of the electrical uh, garage going up, but I didn't hear it. And I was, to be honest, I was too lazy to get out of my bed to investigate it. But just then I thought I smelt smoke. So as you know, as, uh, as a good damage control officer, uh, security is one thing, but, uh, but fire and DC is another. So I was up immediately and I could see that the door to the rest of my apartment was closed. So I thought, well, it's not coming from, from inside the house. It must be coming in because I had my, I had my inner doors open. It's like French windows. I had my inner doors open and I had my, uh, my steel doors, which were louvered. Uh, I had them open, I had them closed. So I opened the, the louvered door and I, I stuck my nose outside and I couldn't smell, couldn't smell anything there. But I wondered, I wonder if it's something to do with this car that had come in. Mm. So I went to, uh, to look over the little balcony uh, to look down and see if I could see this car. And, and as, I, as I did so, I heard this click behind me. <gasps> and I turned, I turned round and can you believe the steel door had closed behind me. Oh, no. And, oh, yes. And I was standing there, three o'clock in the morning, in the bollocky buff. <laughs> not, not a stitch of clothing. Week one of my <laughs> new job. And, of course, I, I remember sort of pawing at the steel door thinking, oh, no, this can't have happened. <laughs> This can't happen. <laughs> and uh, and then I thought, well, I can't get in. Of course, I can't get in. These things are designed not to, or to keep people out. You <laughs> yeah. know? So I, funnily enough, I had wrecked. It was quite a nice day the day before when I got back from the office. So I was sitting outside, enjoying the sunshine, reading some notes or whatever. And I just happened to look up and I, I remember looking at the, the guttering, thinking, you know, it's quite modern, cheap, plastic uh, guttering. And I thought, well, that's not going to hold a, your strength uh, at anything. So there was no way I was going to be climbing down the, the, the guttering or the downpipes or anything like that. But I had uh, the, the guy who was effectively my sponsor and one of the, the British officers who worked in J3, I knew lived in a, in a flat below me. He was a singleton. So I, I found myself sort of half shielding my mouth, trying to, to sort of uh, direct my thing, shouting, Charles, Charles, <laughs> like this. <laughs> um, I, I, did, I did think, you know, was there a way of kind of swinging down onto his <laughs> balcony? And, uh, so, I, so I, I did confess to Charles, I think, the next day that I'd had this particular issue. And he said, oh, 
he, he, he had this hideous vision of me dangling sort of uh, as he came out of <laughs> anyway the long and the short of it was that Charles actually slept on the other side of the building and he didn't hear me anyway so I was just about at the stage where I was ready to give up and I'd seen I'd seen a lady in the mornings when I'd been getting up just the back of seven there was a lady in the block just kind of across the way, maybe about 30 yards, 40 yards away, who was always out in the morning, sort of brushing her uh, veranda, putting out her washing, that sort of thing. Mm. And I thought, I'm just going to have to, 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 uh, <laughs> to, to, scusa mia, problematico <laughs> in the morning, you know. Uh, and I, I was just, just contemplating that. I knew. I knew I wasn't going to die hypothermia or anything. It was just going to be an uncomfortable night because mm. uh, I had no clothing, not a stitch of clothing. And, and I suddenly had a thought, I wonder if I could climb over the roof onto the other side of the building where the, the stair, the external stairwell was that, uh, that led to my front door. And as I was sort of wrecking that route over the top, I realized that the Velux window to my bathroom, which was about four yards to the left of me, was actually cracked open an inch and a half. Oh. So there then ensued the, uh, the brand new four ring captain doing a naked cat crawl across the roof of this four story building. Uh, to, to get to the to get to the window, uh, and it opened. And uh, the next thing, of course, was to lower myself into the bathroom. With and as it happens, the catch for these Velux windows is right in the middle. Mm. So clearly, uh, the next task was to get myself in without leaving any part of my anatomy on the on the catch on the way in. But I came in. And, I, and I, I did a beautiful landing. It must have been about an eight foot, maybe nine foot drop. Beautiful landing, bent my knees, you know, absorbed the shock. <laughs> and I just came up and I just punched the air and went, yes, I'm in. <laughs> I just couldn't believe my luck. But I can tell you, I'm so glad, so glad there was no CCTV on mm. the roof of that building because they'd still be talking about it in Naples <laughs> today, I'm sure of it. Oh, that's <laughs> that hilarious. Was, that was hideously embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but in, all right in the end, thankfully. All right in the end, you saved oh, it. Right. You saved the day. I am I'm a lucky, lucky person, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, Bill, that's great. So in the... Conscious of time, sure. I um, we're going to fast forward again to um, leaving the navy and thinking about a life outside after you know a remarkable thirty-seven years. When did the opportunity for the RNA come up, and when it did, what made you want to take on the role as a CEO? Well, that's it. It's an interesting question, Jenna, because uh, 
I hadn't, I suppose in many ways, I had, uh, I'd had my head in the sand with regards to resettlement and what I was going to do afterwards. Uh, we were busy and although Queen Elizabeth was in by then, uh, there was still considerable work to be done to be able to support two uh, Queen Elizabeth class uh, carriers in Portsmouth. So <clears throat> still very busy. But uh, I did go off and do the, uh, the, the, the uh, career transition workshop, which was very good. Uh, and I thought, OK, I do, I do have to start thinking about this. And it just so happened, uh, I was, it must have been about April, and I was due outside the following January, that uh, the person who was the, the General Secretary, Chief Exec, of the Royal Naval Association. Uh, I used to see him quite regularly because the, the offices are in the Naval base. And he said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at retiring at the end of the year. Uh, you ought to think about what you want to do when, uh, when you're done. And he said, I think you'd be a good candidate for this job if you wanted to, to put yourself forward for it. Uh, and, and told me a bit about it. And, and I thought, okay, you know, if nothing else, it'll make me sit down, do my CV properly and covering letter. And if I get called forward for an interview, that's great. Uh, it'll be good experience uh, for that as well. So I, uh, I, 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 I literally, uh, Jenny, my EA, and the uh, and the decob uh, Kevin, I, I grabbed them uh, an hour before I went over and said, uh, "Right, guys, give me a dummy interview." Uh, uh, and I just had to to switch my serious head on and think about some of the answers and, and whatnot. So they got me warmed up, which was great. Uh, I went across. Uh, it, was, it was a good selection process. Actually, I got to meet uh, half a dozen of the the old shipmates. So, as you can imagine, they're sort of uh, they're sort of getting a feel of you. It was quite an important uh, feedback to the to the board. There was the main interview itself, and then there was a piece on finance uh, too. So, it's sort of like three elements to it. Anyway, uh, Admiral uh, John McAnally phoned me up later on that uh, that, that evening and said, "Bill, uh, do you want to do the job?" Which I, which I actually thought was a funny question. You know, I wouldn't have pitched up uh, if I didn't want to do the job. But I kind of get where he was coming from. Uh, maybe he thought I was just there for the interview practice, you know. Hmm. Uh, and I said, yes, John, I, I do. I do want to do the job. Can anyway, I... Jenna, as, as you have probably guessed, I could keep you here all night. <laughs> I know, but it, it's just it's just so interesting and it's great to hear your your take on things, Bill. Okay, well I will let you go. Yes. And cheers. Yeah. You can't see this online, but I'm raising my little glass to you. Yours Same. looks like Ribena. Mine is definitely uh <laughs> Chenin Blanc, I think. <laughs> it cheers. is Ribena. Cheers. <laughs> All the best. You too. Take care, Bill.